Welcome to Points of Departure, a podcast from the Arkansas Global Changemakers in coordination with KUAF Public Radio. Where we aim to place pressing social issues into global context. And bring communities together to find local solutions to global challenges. My name is Lawrence Hare, Associate Professor of History in the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences. And I am Rogelio Garcia Contreras, Teaching Assistant Faculty in the Walton College of Business. And I'm Daniel Carruth, a producer and reporter for KUAF Public Radio. And we're your hosts for Points of Departure. Coming up on this episode of Points of Departure, housing. Who's got it? Who wants it? And how much should it cost, if anything? Housing is related to generation of wealth, right? That's that's the system and really hard to transform it. So I, th- I think, you know, in the end, it's like what a society wants, right? Like what, what we as a society want and how are our values, right? And um, is housing a human right? I don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's for us to decide as a society. We'll hear from a group of architects who are designing the future of affordable housing. That's coming up right after this break on Points of Departure. You get a lot of information on demand from KUAF's podcasts, but you can get even more from listening to KUAF on air. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. When you listen to KUAF's live programming feed, you get the latest news from NPR programs like Morning Edition, 1A, and All Things Considered, local weather forecasts throughout the day, news about events happening in Northwest Arkansas, and unique music programming on the weekends you won't find anywhere else. Listen for free on your radio at 91.3 FM, at our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF. Welcome, everyone, to Points of Departure. We're so glad you could join us for our third season of this podcast. In the first season, we looked pretty closely at the things that we're doing on campus with the Arkansas Global Changemakers Initiative. We looked at students studying abroad. We looked at some of the organizations that we have partnerships with. We looked at some of our homegrown initiatives. In the second season, we went far afield to Spain and Italy, and we recorded some episodes with partners overseas. And now we want to look at time itself as a point of departure. And so in this season, we're focused on a series of discussions on the future of the problems that we face globally and locally, the strategies that we use to address those problems, and the context and structures in which we work. And so today we're going to be focused on a a particularly salient problem for us in Arkansas and around the world, which is housing access, affordability, housing design. And we're delighted today to be joined by a group of, of distinguished architects. And so let me bring my colleague into the discussion, Rogelio Garcia Contreras. Rogelio, hello. Hello, Lawrence. Uh, thank you for that introduction. And it's good to see you again. Good to be here. And it is very good to be at the KUAF studios again here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, with our friends, um, recording yet another episode of Points of Departure. And we have a very interesting episode today. As uh, you were mentioning, Lawrence, uh, we're going to discuss housing more specifically the challenge of affordability and accessibility that many cities in America and around the world are facing today. And of course, our Northwest Arkansas region is is no exception. We are joined for that purpose uh, by a group of uh, outstanding architects um, who 
also happen to be our friends and, and, and whose work is and has been connected to the question of affordability and accessibility in housing for, for a long time. Um, uh, please help me welcome Fernanda Opperman and Jose Errasti. Fernanda and Jose are partners and principal architects at Mutuo Studio uh, in Los Angeles. Fernanda is originally from Brazil and uh, Jose is originally from Mexico, two countries with tremendous challenges when it comes to housing, uh, but also countries with a long and fascinating architectural and design traditions. Uh, so Fernanda, Jose, welcome to Points of Departure. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having us. Sure. And uh, we're also joined by our friend and colleague, John Follen. Uh, John is the head of the Department of Architecture and a professor at the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas. John is also yeah, the head of the Urban Design Build Studio, and he has done incredible work with his students in the field of affordable housing and accessibility. John, thanks for being here today with us. Um, welcome to Points of Departure. Thank you for the invitation, Rogelio. It's nice to join you. Thank you. So, so, so let's start with a with a general question. What is affordable or accessible housing? We hear those terms, and we normally think in financial terms. Immediately, our brains go to uh, this uh, financial aspect. You know, obviously important. It's a major factor uh, that keeps government officials and engineers and architects, builders, homeowners or potential homeowners awake, uh, but as architects in the work that you do, and, and this is a question for, for the three of you, how do you understand affordability? How do you understand accessibility in housing? I mean, I, I think you have to start with terminology, right? Because affordable housing, the way it is used, it means that it's subsidized housing by the government. And in in another aspect, it's about how much it costs for you to buy a house. Uh, so so it depends who you're talking to and how they understand it. But uh, in, in financial terms, it's about subsidized housing. Yeah. When Jose and I started wanting to do work in affordability, like houses that were more affordable, we realized that... The affordable housing market is a market that we as a young studio coming in didn't have much access to working on. And also uh, we started to see that for that affordable housing uh, to pan out financially, they had to provide many units. And so it became, uh, you know, when we started this 10 years ago, there were like this, um, there's companies that do that and do that very well and sometimes they have like this big projects and it has a stigma that comes with it when they come in a neighborhood. So we were interested in seeing how could we design houses that were affordable in a parallel way. And so, and we started getting more interested about that because it's a more organic way to be part of the fabric of the city and, uh, and to mix in with other people and, and not to have perhaps not to have that stigma so much. So the way that we were looking into affordable housing is what we call the affordable by design, where may, perhaps you can design more affordably so that you don't need to get all of those um, incentives from the government. And I think that's the route we took uh, with our projects. I, I would agree with 
Jose and and the observations that uh, Fernando is making that if we start with terminology in the U.S., it's understood by relevance to median income. And so when we talk about affordability, uh, it's typically done in terms of an index that's at 40% of the annual median income, 60% of the annual median income, 80% market rate, 120, 140, 160. And so depending on where someone is situated and the other economic factors, you could be having a discussion about somebody who's at 120 uh, percent AMI. In Northwest Arkansas, we're really focusing on people who are in that 40 to 60 percent AMI who are being um, where the housing is most jeopardized. You know, I think one of the things that you were implying, Rogelio, is there's the sort of economic factors that one utilizes to uh, identify or define affordability in housing. But of course, there are other costs associated with living that impact that housing. So transportation costs, if there's a lack of a mass transit system, uh, if amenities like uh, access to food, groceries, school, those all start to uh, impact the affordability of a home as well. Jose, can I ask, where do you see the field of architecture connecting to affordable housing? Has that been a priority for architects or is that just now appearing on the radar? I think it's been a priority for architects, but I think there are different approaches. So as we were mentioning, uh, there are architects and developers that focus on this uh, subsidized affordable housing, which do these larger developments. And I think that there's another group of architects, and, and I think we would count ourselves within that group, which are looking for alternatives to do smaller developments that are part of the, the city fabric and that use potentially private funding in order to develop these smaller developments. That's uh, actually what we are interested in, designing buildings that are more affordable to build so that they can be built with, with private funding. And this, this takes me, I mean, I think this, is, this was mentioned by Fernanda, uh, you know, this affordability by design, right? By virtue of doing that, you can expand the scope of what affordability is or accessibility is you know, to broader, broader fr frontiers. Uh, can you can you elaborate a little bit as to which are these frontiers, how uh, in the in the space in the industry of architecture, how in that space this is being adopted, uh, not only in sustainability terms, you know, financial legislative terms, a, 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 any any aspect that you think uh, is being transformed by this concept of affordability by design. Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind is that. We see here in LA that, and, and in general uh, in the US, that families are transforming, right? How people live together uh, years ago um, is different than today. Today, kids stay longer in the home. Sometimes grandparents, like in the Latin community, we see a lot of uh, grandmas and grandpas living with the family. So there is already like more flexibility, like in how maybe houses are not just for for a mom and dad and kids, now houses are taking in more of the other families. And how do you arrange them in a lot? And how is it one lot? Is it more lots that people share? And there is the co-living now that uh, has been tried um, throughout the world and in LA too, that people get together to have a life in community and they are not family members. And they want their privacy, but they also want to share their life. So I think there is in the arrangement of how people um, live, there is more flexibility. And I think that's 
a way to generate more affordability too. And to us, that means that we need to be more open to be more flexible. As an no, example of, of this flexibility, uh, I mean, you can see that uh, in California and I think in other states as well, uh, these accessible dwelling units are now allowed, right? So that allows you to have, uh, as Fernanda was mentioning, properties where you have two or three generations of people living under the same roof. I think there's there's also, you know, there, there's many things. There's the cultural aspect. So how do you how do you design for the people that are going to occupy these houses? Then there's the focus of design, right? So how do you design without making things expensive? So how do you design... Uh, let's say, a space that addresses the needs of the family without having to do the typical finishes that a real estate agent would think of as uh, something that gives quality to a home. So I think uh, design can address those issues. Yeah, so clearly this is a complex issue with a lot of moving parts, and the solution naturally has to equally be complex. And and so I guess it raises the question, we have three architects (laughs) The question of what an architect can do to really address this problem. And John, let, let me put this question to you. What what do you see as the the scope of design as a as a solution or a component of a solution? The scope of the solution has to be much more inclusive of all of the parameters that we've been discussing. And so there are the the fundamental physical design aspects that we've been talking about. And ultimately what has to happen if we're talking about housing for sale and, and wealth building in challenged communities and first-time home buyers, um, you are working with a financial system that's in place that requires uh, comparables to be established in uh, propelling the work forward. It becomes important for those stakeholders to be at the table. The residents themselves need to be at the table, and, and that can be challenging by virtue of elevating hopes that may not be able to um, be accommodated within a a specific amount of time. Um, But it also means that you're going to engage a workforce and the contractors on the front end. And so to get all of those people around the table to address these challenges becomes really, um, that that is the design problem in and of itself, is just getting a group together and building the team to build. Yeah, I want to ask about that. So specifically with respect to the to the potential owners of the homes. And so you, some of the solutions that I'm hearing from, from all of you relate to ways of living. We're talking about human-centered design. But as you know, your owners are going to bring their own expectations, as John suggested. So to what extent do architects have to think about the degree to which your, your approaches are reflecting trends in living or are shaping those trends? You know, I mean, do you ever do you ever have to deal with the issue, for example, of of imposing standards on potential buyers? I hope we don't, <laughs> but I think it's like, like we have been discussing this past year with this exhibit we were doing at Crystal Bridges, uh, what is a home, right? A home has a lot to do with people's own cultures and um, how they feel comfortable. So the more you give them the opportunity to shape that space into what they feel comfortable with, which is very different depending on where they grew up and where, you know, and knowing that the U.S. has this big immigrant population and, you know, so you have to make space for people to shape their own homes. 
Yeah, definitely a challenge. And Fernanda, you, you, you are referring to the Architecture at Home exhibit at Crystal Bridges, uh, which yes. is the first mm -hmm. uh, outdoor architecture exhibition in, in, in the museum in our region, for as far as I know. Uh, and this exhibit aims to spark a dialogue about mm -hmm. contemporary housing and how it can better serve the needs of individuals and communities. And, and one of the reasons for which Lawrence and I were fascinated about the work you're doing is that, uh, you, well, you, you are one of the, I believe, six architects that were invited uh, um, to be part of the exhibit, five, five architects. Um, and uh, you're one of them, one of the, the, the studios uh, that uh, got to build uh, a home. And, and when you go see the exhibit, which, by the way, I recommend uh, to anyone that is listening in the Northwest Arkansas region to stop at Crystal Bridges and see this exhibit, You have a phrase there in the as you start the explanation of uh, what you built, that your work is as much about empathy as it is about space. Can you elaborate a little bit on this, the spirit behind the work that you did at Crystal Bridges? So for us, when we started this project, we had been like developing, trying to develop prototypes for affordable housing in LA for eight years more or less. And we actually were noticing that we were we could come up with many different types of ways to put homes together, like using concrete boxes, using SIPs panels, using so we were like developing all this this new typologies, but we were still like really it was still really hard to build. So we started thinking that the problem is way deeper than the the typologies. So When we were approached by Crystal Bridges, we decided to look at what are the underlying factors that are preventing housing. Maybe, Jose, do you want to elaborate on the? Yeah, so so as Fernanda was mentioning, what our approach was to say, well, you know, architecture and design is just one of the components that works in, in conjunction with a system that is, that is in place to create housing. So this system, and, and we, we simplified it uh, for the exhibition's sake, but uh, we were considering that it was... Uh, land acquisition, financing, uh, permitting, and construction, and how each one of those systems had its own problems. So as an example, you know, we, we are architects, we are used to dealing with, with cities uh, and, and obtaining permits. And here in LA, we've been stuck for almost five years getting a planning permit for four houses that we are building. Now we are professionals and we can't do it. So Imagine what that problem can become for somebody who doesn't have uh, the knowledge. And, and with that, um, you know, also the issue of financing, like uh, if you don't have a social security, if you don't have payroll, then it becomes really difficult to obtain money uh, to either purchase land or build your house. So I think that our approach was about how can you make the systems more flexible in order to fit more people and be more inclusive. So that's, uh, that's, the approach that we took for that project. You're listening to Points of Departure. We'll be right back after this break. Hi, my name is Heather Elsey, and I'm an environmental educator for the city of Fayetteville here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I listen to Points of Departure. Do you have a story to tell? Come by the Listening Lab at KUAF and share it with us. 
All you have to do is go online to KUAFListeningLab.com and click on Share Your Story. And after submitting your request, we'll reach out to schedule a time for you to come by the KUAF studio. And you can listen to past conversations from the Listening Lab anytime at KUAFListeningLab.com. You're listening to Points of Departure. So you need design creativity, but you also need regulatory creativity. Financial creativity. And financial and, uh, creativity. And, uh, yeah. Is this even possible in L.A.? How, su- how successful have you been with implementation in, in Los Angeles? Yeah, it's, it has been a, a long road. We have been designing these concrete boxes and systems for faster and, and more affordable housing. And we have this tower that should uh, start construction uh, soon, but it has been a huge challenge with manufacturers to change their mind and see that what they build all the time for drainage of water under the streets, if you change and now you want to use into housing, now it's a challenge and they don't want to participate. So it's like people are very set and in their own ways of like things that are working financially and uh, not necessarily want to be a part of something that's different. So we have been thinking about, can you, perhaps you can build that in Mexico or, or Brazil in another country that doesn't have something so such stringent uh, regulations or rules. And then maybe you bring back here at some point. The system here needs a lot of proof of concept before anything is it's a chicken accepted. and egg, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. You have to build the concept, but then you have to get permission to build the concept. <laughs> John, can I ask you about Arkansas? Is, is, I mean, the Crystal Bridges exhibit was right here in Northwest Arkansas. Is Arkansas maybe working better as a potential site for innovation in the area of housing? I wouldn't say better. I think the um, there are solutions that have been employed throughout the country that demonstrate an enlightened way of um, approaching issues of affordable housing at different income sectors. Going back to this notion of preconception, there's a tendency to be risk averse. And so it is really important to demonstrate in place. Uh, we we have uh, three demonstration projects that we're uh, currently developing. Um, again, they're predicated on this notion of team building with a relationship between contractors, people from uh, finance, legal consultants, and then a design team along with um, organization that represent uh, resident groups in an effort to uh, implement prototypes that, uh, again, going back to this notion, will, will qualify for the type of lending that's needed to facilitate the implementation of the housing. So typically the desire for innovation matches the degree of need in place. Certainly there's an appetite for exploring innovative approaches, it's just I, I wouldn't qualify it as being different or, or perhaps better than another region. Well, it's interesting you mentioned costs because one, one of the draws of Northwest Arkansas, because I've lived here for 12 years, and when I first moved here, Fayetteville, for example, was always ranking one of the best places to live in the U.S., and one of the main reasons it was was because of the affordability of housing for uh, many who are moving into the area. But that really isn't the case anymore. I mean, housing costs have gone up, and I know they've gone up nationally, and of course, rates are going up. But your movements are, or or your initiatives are kind of long-term. Have the recent changes in in the sort of cost factors had you, lead you to, does that lead you to change your thinking about strategy or your approach to innovative design? 
No, it, it has to change. And I, I think one of the things, you know, that we've been exploring more recently is design to income because we're seeing the, the subsidy mechanisms for housing um, demonstrate great volatility. If you, if you track them over the past 40 or 50 years, there's a, a degree of great volatility with regard to when they're available and when they're not. And it is subject to uh, swings in political inclination. And so uh, with the design to income, it, what we do is we kind of back into the amount of space that somebody can afford to build or that a project can afford to sustain. And so if the interest rates uh, increase, if the cost of construction increases, if the cost of land increases, of course, it becomes a negative influence or a negative factor in the design to income model. And so essentially you're, you're able to build less and less. And so you've got to start thinking of different ways that spaces can be utilized and how you can make things more efficient. And, and, and I think this is exactly the greatest challenge of this uh, work around affordability and accessibility. The, the, the fact that one, if I am understanding correctly, first of all, there are many actors that would need to become more flexible in the efforts, you know, like think outside the box a little bit, innovate around the processes that you have, you know, to obtain alone uh, to obtain land to obtain a permit right uh, you know different building codes etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a large ecosystem so you have some flexibility there or the need for that flexibility but you also face constantly the question of affordability and uh, accessibility to these homes in in pure financial terms and I think there's there's you know always this this challenge it is obviously uh, or could be potentially cheaper to build at scale, you know, a, a development with with similar homes to drop uh, to bring prices or the cost down, right? Um, than than it is to customize the home to the specific needs and 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 requirements of a particular family or a particular homeowner. In this dilemma, where do you see the industry going? Is it actually possible to accomplish this? monumental task of bringing affordable housing to cities like LA or to places like Northwest Arkansas when all these factors take place. Uh, Fernanda was mentioning just a few minutes ago, maybe we need to try it somewhere else uh, and see how that works over there and bring the model back home, which is the premise of the work that we do with Arkansas change makers. What can we learn from other countries, other localities around the world right. and what we can bring back? Uh, is it is it possible here? Is it possible somewhere else to to find that balance and that flexibility that is required to really have an impact in this space? I mean, I I, I think it's uh, you know interesting that you're talking about looking somewhere else. I mean, we 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 look a lot uh, to the global south, which is you know where we're from, and and you know when Fernanda and I started looking at at the exhibit that she mentioned before, we were we were thinking about how rigid the systems here are and how maybe over flexible they are in the global south and how <laughs> you know you could dial it in uh in a way to to fall in in a place where it isn't so much but it isn't so little you know after, after looking at this then we, we decided to to focus on flexibility but this was one of our, our ideas was to 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 look into self-construction or self-determination right rather than than looking up for government and, and developers to solve the problems of, of housing. I noticed on your website, you say 
that you look for a multicultural perspective to improve spatial and design solutions. And, and I, I'm assuming this is part of what you're talking about. I mean, you're, you're looking to other places, uh, other, other communities. Are you also seeing that same exchange manifesting in the design themselves? Or is that, is that shaping the way you're actually uh, designing homes in L.A.? Yes, I, I, I can talk a little bit about the a little bit more about the project that Fernanda was mentioning. So this this is a a tower of micro units, and this speaks to to what John was saying about size, right? So these are micro units, not a solution for everybody, but for some people. And what we were looking for was was a, a monolithic system where you would you would have one system that would address both structure and finish. And what Fernanda was talking about, these concrete boxes, they are actually uh, drainage culverts that are used for industrial purposes. And we wanted to reuse them in order to build this tower. So, so yes, you know, it, it, it manifests in the way that we design it. Oh, that's fantastic. And of course, no house exists really on its own. And, and I, I think about this when I, when I had a chance to visit uh, John's um, housing desire, design seminar that he was running in the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design. It was so interesting, John. You, <clears throat> you had your students designing homes for specific neighborhoods in Northwest Arkansas, and you you had them visit those neighborhoods. You had them mapping them and exploring them. And I'm I'm curious to see or to hear a little bit about how that experience helps them think about how, how to design for specific neighborhoods. There's no substitute for interaction with um, local residents and to be on site. What's interesting, the students tend to, uh, while they, they may want to challenge some notions or they may want to propose things that are innovative, there is a, a, almost a reticence to do so because there are expectations of what a home should be in Northwest Arkansas or what a home should be in the United States. Oftentimes that can be an inhibiting factor. One of the things that we try to do with the students is make sure that we have demographic data that's gathered so that there is clear information that talks about the metrics, but then to understand whether that uh, matches what's experienced qualitatively and to see what some of the differences are. For example, the you know something as simple as the front yard versus the backyard. We have a very large Latinx community in Springdale, and what was heard from the residents is that the notion of everything being in the backyard was rather a foreign concept, that everything should be in the front of the home. And even though students heard that, there was a general resistance to doing that because it differentiated what was understood to be the norm in Northwest Arkansas. So I think a lot of those cultural, those cultural aspects become really interesting things for students uh, provides an opportunity for them to um, really understand uh, some of those dimensions uh, and understand the difference between uh, qualitative and quantitative uh, aspects. I I think John is touching on a very important uh, aspect that often happens whenever students interact with community partners. Our biases, our social construction permeates not only the potential solution to the problem, but the interpretation that we have on the problem. And this is what I find really fascinating uh, of the work that Muto is doing in looking, as Jose was mentioning, to the Global South, not because it's the Global South, but simply because it may bring different perspectives, different understandings, different ways of approaching an issue and and perhaps spark some real innovation, right? Because uh, in the 
exhibit again, they post this question, what if housing changed from a commodity that creates wealth, which in a way is the way in which housing is conceived here in America, certainly, to a human-centered value that promotes security, builds community, and generates equity, right? I think that is a, is a wonderful question. Uh, I don't know if uh, any of you want to comment on that. What if that happens? You know, what kind of community can we build based on that concept of housing? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's definitely the question. <laughs> definitely, I think the systems would be more flexible to be more inclusive if that happened. And I think people would have more housing, you know, and housing is related to generation of wealth, right? That's, that's the system and really hard to transform it. So I, th I think, you know, in the end, it's like what a society wants, right? Like what, what we as a society want and how are your, our values, right? And um, I think that's a very deeper question and it's much harder to change that than tweak the, the system. But in fact, you really have to need to have a different understanding of, of the problem and, and start thinking about housing as in a different way to make sure that all this flexibility really happens. Is housing a human right? I don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's for us to decide as a society. So looking ahead 10, 20 years down the line, do you feel optimistic about the, the state of housing or the, the accessibility of housing in the United States? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I would say no. I mean, I, I, the, the reason why I say no is because I see the issue here in Los Angeles where a few years ago there were 24,000 people on house and now it's closer to 50,000 people on house. It should be treated as an emergency. I, I, I think that, so, so there, there's several things. There, there's, there's policy, there's getting permits, and there's building codes, which, which also get more strict, right? So I think that some of the, the rules and, and the constraints need to be loosened so that uh, the, the huge housing need, especially for people living on the streets, is addressed. In, in your experience, uh, any of you, with, through your research, your work, is it happening somewhere here in America or somewhere? A model that comes closer to that idea. I believe. I believe in Houston there was a program where um, government and uh, nonprofits and and developers and everybody involved in housing kind of got together. They approached the problem in unity, right? Instead mm -hmm. of doing it with several different entities, and Wait. and I think they lowered the amount of, of people living on the streets significantly. I I don't remember exactly when this was, but I think it was uh, recently. Here in Los Angeles, it's chaos. Which is what John was mentioning a few minutes ago in, in relation to the, the real challenges in the, the design of these working groups, right? Uh, perhaps in the unity of all these stakeholders. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. I, I would actually point to Los Angeles as a model. Um, the homelessness challenge in Los Angeles is extraordinary and it's been exacerbated, but they actually have some of the most innovative policies in place, but they can't meet the demand. And so, well, there have been several good models, and, and they're good models in terms of the provision of, of housing for the homeless because there's so many back-of-house back services that are provided to those residents. There's not nearly enough to meet the demand. Um, and, and to go back to the question about being optimistic for the future, I'm, I think we have to be optimistic for the future but we are going to have to change the way that we're training people uh, to be designers. There, it's it's got to be less about form. It's got to be less about 
some of the attributes that we focused on, um, particularly in architectural education, as important as they are, and more about team building and more about understanding the complex networks that are need to bring to bear not only on this challenge, but uh, the multitude of challenges that uh, society faces moving forward. Yeah, and I would add to that, we need to be more, like as I mentioned before, take a, a bigger part into understanding of the politics and like we need to be more involved in other aspects. Uh, financing, we need to understand. We need to understand politics too. Us as architects, I think we need to be more involved in many aspects, understand that this problem is more complex and, and there's it's multifaceted. I guess there are other aspects that I wanted to touch on. We're running out of time, but uh, if, if any of you would like to comment on the importance of, of beauty in this effort to build equity, provide a sense of security, build community, the importance of beauty in the design, the importance of, of inclusion in spaces that are common, uh, that, that, that bring that spirit of the people that occupy this space. I, I have many friends that are architects and, and they keep telling me about the importance of these spaces have to be beautiful. What, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, is, is, does beauty play a role in the way we conceive housing and the possibilities? I don't think you could ever talk about this without the notion of beauty being important. I think, uh, you know, I think everybody is familiar with the sort of the, the old statement related to the labor movement we need bread, but we also need roses too. And it talks about the fact that there's a quality of life that needs to be maintained and beauty is certainly a portion of that. I mean, I, I, I think that, that beauty is also uh, something that, that, that is about perception, right? And different people right. might have a different perception about what, what beauty or, or comfort is. And that's where I think that we, we like to talk to the communities that we design for to understand what their needs are, and then address them in in in, uh, in a way that that meets their perception of beauty. I do think that that as architects, one of the things that we can do is is provide uh, spatial qualities that are uh, it goes beyond beauty. But what is what is a good space to live in? What is the connection of that space to the exterior? So yes, I mean, as as John was mentioning, we need to teach architects uh, not just to design, also to get involved in all of the other issues that we've been talking about that have to do with housing and with, with design of other buildings. But we still need to to teach them how to make a good space for people. Yeah, and I, and I would go a little further and say, like, this, the places we stay should be inspiring, right? We should mm -hmm. leave feeling like we are capable of going out there and doing better things. There needs to be a, there's a self-confidence that comes from living in a comfortable and inspiring place. And I think uh, that's what we aim to achieve. Just want to say how much we appreciate your, the time that each of you took today to join us and to discuss this issue. Certainly this is not the last word on this discussion, but you definitely enlightened us. John, Has Fernanda, Jose, thank you very much for joining us and for being part of this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. much. Thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to Points of Departure. Your hosts are Rogelio Garcia Contreras and Lawrence Hare. I'm producer Daniel Carruth. Points of Departure is a podcast production of KUAF Public Radio and Arkansas Global Changemakers. 
To find out more about topics discussed in this episode, links and information about our guests, as well as previous episodes of Points of Departure, that's all available at KUAF.com.